Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, this is uh, Fred Sirix from First Dates and countless other TV programs. Just to say that uh, if you want to uh, see me not being impersonated by Ice Magarn, uh, make me watch uh, Paul Boss and the Humorology podcast. Very difficult thing to say for a Frenchman. Humor... Humorology. I can't say it. It's difficult, no? It's difficult. Humorology. 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 Welcome to the Humorology Podcast with me, Paul Barros, and my glittering lineup of guests from the world of business, sport, and entertainment who are going to share their wisdom and their use of humor. Humorology is the study of how humour can dramatically improve your business success and your life. Humorology puts the fun into business fundamentals, increases the value of your laughing stock and puts a punchline back into your bottom line. Please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Our guest on this edition of the Humorology podcast is a multi-award winning impressionist, stand-up comic and actor who has been on stage, on screen and on air for over 30 years. His primetime top rating TV comedy series regularly attracted tens of millions of viewers. His dedication to the craft of laughter is legendary. This total tenacity and love of learning recently led him, in just four years, from being a complete novice at the piano to having the number one album in the official classical charts. Alistair McGowan, welcome to the Humorology Podcast. Thank you, Paul. I enjoyed that introduction. That was quite nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all There's true. Your... Well, yeah, tens of millions, I think. is. No, what do you say? Tens of millions. Yeah, no, it was about eight, eight million was our top audience in those days, but that's pretty respectable at the time. We were in the top 10 when we were on BBC One, but boy, it was a long time ago. It's 15 years. No, I keep saying that from, it's 17 years now since we stopped being on air, I think, 16 years. 2004 was our last uh, big impression, which surprises a lot of people. They say, was it that long ago? And uh, it's very fondly remembered, but yeah, it was a long time ago. Well, isn't it like everything that's fondly remembered? It seems like only yesterday and it, and it still feels fresh, but, you know, because some of those impressions, those people are still going. So it was a yeah. classic. No, I mean, uh, certainly when, when we started, I remember uh, doing Hugh Edwards and Hugh at the time, obviously, was uh, reading news 
I think it's six o'clock in those days. And um, I remember one of my neighbours at the time in Clapham uh, coming up to me and saying, uh, indeed, it was the six o'clock news. And she said, I'm very much enjoying the show, she said, you're doing on BBC One. And I particularly love that Welsh newsreader character that you've invented. How nice to put that alongside all the well-known impressions. And uh, that shows how, how far, uh, how long ago it was. But what was interesting about that also was that she, being a Londoner, didn't watch the news at six because she was still getting home from work. So she only watched the news at 10, didn't realise that this Welshman was then reading the news every night on BBC One at six o'clock and is now, obviously, as you say, progressed and is a, is, is a household name, if not a national treasure. <laughs> it's fabulous. I mean, the Jesuits say, give me a child of seven and I will give you the man. Was the mm. young Alistair McGowan uh, funny? No, actually. Uh, it's nice of the Jesuits to say that. I would probably say, give me a child of seven and I'll give it back to you after about five minutes. <laughs> I've never had children and I don't really. Um, yes, you can have anyway, mine. we won't go down that route. Um, no, I, I, I was, uh, my father actually, and that's where I owe my humour to, who I owe my humour to, where it comes from, I think, is my father. And I was very lucky through having done programmes on the BBC, like The Big Impression, for four years, as I said, uh, to be asked to do Who Do You Think You Are? in 2007, I think it was. And my father had died in 2003, just when we were completing our last series of Big Impression, which made finishing that pretty uh, challenging in many ways. Um, but I went and did Who Do You Think You Are? and found out all about his roots. Now, I knew that he'd been born in India. Uh, it turned out his family, he always said, oh, well, my mother and father just happened to be there. That's where I was born. Said, oh, they just happened to be there. Well, they'd happened to be there, the McGowan, since 1750. So they'd been in India quite a long time and were part of the Anglo-Indian community. Now, this is all relevant to humour because um, as a community, they weren't really English. They weren't really Indian. They didn't quite belong in any camp. They were Christians. Uh, they were loyal to the English uh, uh, ruling class, if you like, but they were also... Uh, had, had a foot in, in the traditional Indian camp. So I don't think they ever felt they belonged anywhere. And after independence, the Anglo-Indians came, uh, all, went all over the world, Australia, Canada, parts of the Commonwealth, and particularly to King's Heath near Birmingham and into Middlesex, where my father went. So the point is that he came to England and never really was part of the culture, didn't have it growing up. So he was always interested. This is the point. He was always interested in, in our language. He couldn't replicate any accent, but he was fascinated by how many different ways of pronunciation there were, different ways of pronouncing things. And that was something that really informed me. And having, having had my father's eye on it and his ear on it, that's what gave me an awareness of language and I suppose a source of, yeah, playing with the language, being ultra aware of how everybody spoke because he, was, he came to it afresh, age 23 or something. Do you think that, assimilation into a new culture is helped by humour? Uh, I think it is, yeah. I think my dad was always a witty person, but there's no doubt that his wit probably helped him um, settle here. And I think we all do it. You know, it's one of the ways in which accents are changed. Uh, now, I think we've talked about this personally, you and I, but I have this absolute horror of the way people all speak now, like Australians, and they go up at the end of their sentences. It drives me absolutely nuts. I was not brought up with that way of speaking. If you wanted to make a point, you made a point. You know, you didn't make it into a question. To me, all these young people now, they sound like they haven't got the courage of their own convictions. They don't believe what they're saying. But the point I'm making is that it's to fit in. Everybody's, everybody does it. And so everybody now has started doing it. Even parents of teenage children 
do it because their children do it. And you think, you weren't brought up like that. You're older than me. Why are you suddenly doing that? We have an innate desire to fit in. And that's why, you know, a lot of people will change their accent, drop an accent if they move around the country or move to London or whatever. So accents, I think, are a big part of it. But humour, yes, of course. People want to uh, um, make people laugh. Making people laugh is, is one of the greatest things you can do. It's getting harder. I think it's getting harder because you've got to be more and more sensitive. You know. so, so do you think it's narrowed on what is considered funny now? Uh, yes, I think so. I mean, looking back on my television career and stand-up career, I've always been very careful, I think, throughout my 30 years in the business not to offend anybody. I've always been really surprised, in fact, when I've arrived at particularly corporate dues. And I don't think it would happen now because I don't think anybody would expect you to, but certainly 10 or 15 years ago, people say, uh, you know, yeah, we're, we're having a function and uh, we want you to entertain. And just one thing, uh, we, we, we don't want you to do anything um, racist and anything sexist. And you think, well, you know, why are you even asking that question? It's just our generation of comedy comedians would never have even thought about that sort of thing, I, I hope. Um, but that was something that was still something that had to be said. But now, of course, people get offended by so many other things and the words that we use our generation on mid fifties, you know, to describe whatever, um, situation, some of them now you use them out of habit and they are out of date and they can offend people. And you think, I didn't mean to offend. That's just the word I was brought up with. Sensibilities have changed. And, and, and as I say, you try and be sensitive, then you realize that you're being sensitive to people of our age and younger people have greater sensitivities. And so I think humor has become very hard on stage and certainly within the workplace, you know, what? flirtation or playfulness or wordplay or whatever you want to call it can cause offence. And I, I hope that it's not stopping people from daring to be witty, but it does go through my mind as a professional all the time. Well, it is bizarre because I should tell our listeners that, that we originally met at the working uh, the comedy store and that circuit. And, and one of the fundamental rules there was that we were a shift and you could do no sexist, no racist material as, a, if you like, a backlash to the old Clubland comics. So it, when it's even narrowed further than that, it, I think... I'm the same. I find it quite mm. sort of like I'm I'm thinking, can I say that? You know? Yeah. And also, I mean, I remember years ago, I mean, I started in what, 1990. In 1992, I can remember it vividly. That was about 94. Uh, I was in Manchester and I'd done a gig uh, the night before and um, I hung around that night, stayed with a friend. The next day I went and bumped into one of the audience members and this, this fellow came up to me and he said to uh, he said, uh, enjoy the show. He said, but you shouldn't be doing June and Clary. You shouldn't be doing June and Clary because you're not gay. And you're doing June and Clary and it's offensive to the gay community if you're doing June and Clary. And I thought, I, I had to sort of be dragged away from an argument with this guy by my friend because I was saying, if I don't do people as an impressionist, you know, I, and I, everybody did Julian in those days, of course, we all did, you knew him well, <laughs> then probably still do, Paul. And it was a wonderful voice too, and Julian was everywhere on the television and being very funny, I thank you. Um, <laughs> but if I said, oh, I'm not going to do gay characters because I'm not gay, then I'm sort of being aware that there's a difference and I'm ostracizing that community, if you like, from my act, and you think, what sort of world is that when you can't do, or, you know, nowadays, Alan Carr, people say, oh, you can't do Alan Carr because you haven't got big tapes or something, or, or because you're not gay, or because you're not from Northampton. And you think, 
well, on what grounds can you now impersonate anybody or make any joke? It's, uh, it's, it's just gone so far that, you know, and also causing offense to a point is what motivated a lot of comedians of our generation not causing offence to individuals or groups, I suppose, but, I mean, look at someone like Jimmy Carr. He pushes it as far as he can and will always upset somebody with practically every joke he comes out with. But you accept that and you think, yeah, but it's a joke, you know, it's... But then do jokes reinforce stereotypes? Do they reinforce a packing order within society and within, a, within an office situation, within a business situation? I think that's important. Are you, with your humour actually reinforcing a stereotypical situation. Well, this argument's been going on for years because when I was growing up, uh, my best friend's uh, father was William G. Stewart, who knew Johnny Spate, who mm. used to write Till Death Us Do Part. Yeah. yeah. And Johnny was fiercely working class, fiercely intelligent, but presumed that he was showing up the Alf Garnets of this world. But yeah. it's always been the same way that, you know, some people went, yeah, Alf Garnet's right when he does that. But I mean, you have to allow humor to have it, have that breadth of, of being able to poke fun at anyone. Otherwise, we close down that whole avenue of being able to prick the bubble of hypocrisy, don't we? We do, and also, I mean, sometimes I question uh, impressions and why I do impressions and what that's all about. And I think there is exactly that phrase, pricking the bubble of, um, of hypocrisy on pomposity, whatever else. But I was aware, certainly doing the comedy circuit, I mean, at the time, you know, it was people like, um, you know, Eddie Izzard was around and, and people like Eddie and then Jack D was around and, uh, you know, I used to do my Jack D and, and, and Dylan Moran, you know, was, was on the circuit. Um, and... Um, Joe Browns and people like that, everybody was there. And I do people like Joe, or whoever it might be. And um, it was sort of affectionate. It was nothing was ever meant by it. And also within the comedy world, a bit like uh, sportsmen, I suppose, you're used to giving it out, so you take it a bit. But when I started working in the theatre, you mentioned the acting in your lovely introduction, I was very aware that I could do, after a couple of weeks of rehearsals, some of the members of the cast. But I never did it because you think if i start to do a few people in the cast it undermines possibly i think actors are a little bit more sensitive but you're also working in a group so you don't want to suddenly create some sort of thing where i'm making fun of somebody or their voice making themselves conscious of their voice so i had to deliberately in that situation back off and not do impressions of people in the acting company and again you think within a business situation it was sort of all right i think to do the boss because the boss is, you know, but you don't want the boss to see you doing the boss. But do you do everybody within the company? And are you passing comment on some people or is it just a bit of fun? Well, it's, it's, it's the difference between punching up and punching down, isn't it? Which is, uh, you know, it, yeah. because we, we've obviously all done a lot of corporates together and it was always seen as fair game for the CEO or the boss to to have the mickey taken out of them. And yeah. the better they took that, in inverted commas, abuse, the more they were lauded as being a great boss and he can take a joke. How important do you think that is? I think, I think it's very important. I mean, you know, uh, I, I, actually, I've been surprised sometimes doing corporate events where the head of the organisation will introduce me after they've made quite a lengthy speech. 
And that's always great fun because if they've got a doable voice, you've only got to kind of just give something like a representation of it, a replication of it. And, um, and people love it, you know, because you're doing a boss, you're doing a boss. But I mean, to us, you go in and the boss, obviously you're respectful to him, but he doesn't have the status that he does for the staff. <laughs> so, um, so that's always very enjoyable to make fun of them. If there's any sort of, you know, if anyone's got a list or, you know, I should, again, you know, you start making fun of people, but, um, or, or a strong accent or whatever. Um, there's a fellow who actually I think is the funniest uh, corporate person I've ever met. I'm pretty sure his name is Steve Lee. And I believe he's left his job now, but he used to work for the Chartered Institute of Waste Management. And I did two or three events for Steve. And he had a very strong West Midlands accent. I mean, it wasn't unlike Adrian Giles, to be perfectly honest with you. <laughs> but he'd always do this very serious speech about waste management and what we are all doing. And then he'd say, now, please welcome to entertain us. Here's Alistair McGowan. And, of course, all I had to do was say, thank you very much there to Steve Lee. And a massive response. And you go, oh, thank you, Steve, for having such a strong accent. He actually he gave me quite a few lines. And one of them I had to ask him if I could use in my act. And I did use it for quite a while. Um, he told me uh, that... Um, yeah, in the, in the in the Midlands, because he's from the West Midlands, as I said, in the black country, uh, he said that you could have a whole conversation with the words, all right, mate. And that he, I can't remember now the five stages of it, but it was something like, it's, a, it's an inquiry about your health, then it's concern, and then it's, are you sure you're all right? And it's, yes, I'm fine. Right, let's proceed with, the, with our conversation. So it goes something like this. It goes, all right, mate. 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 <laughs> And the whole thing was, are you sure you're all right? Yes, I am. Oh, something there, isn't there? Yes, but let's not talk about it. Let's get on. All right, mate. All right, mate. All right, mate. All right, mate. All right. <laughs> and he did it brilliantly. He did it absolutely brilliantly. So I used to use that for quite a while in my act, thanks to Steve Lee. And I think that's the thing for me with, with humour in life and, and certainly speech-making uh, on stage as yourself, not, not as an actor, as, as yourself at some corporate event, is the difference between, you see it at wedding speeches as well, the difference between being funny and being witty. And for me, I've always been interested in wit, in wit. And I think wit is the thing actually, which is probably more attractive in the business world and possibly in life and certainly in the dating game. I mean, I would, I would always resist anybody who says, here's a joke for you because you go, oh, okay. Uh -huh. But when someone says something witty or they play with words or they, they just make the language interesting through the use of humor but not telling jokes that that's that's what that's what i find funny and that's what arrests people interesting use of language witty use of language and there's a, there's a big difference between wit and comedy i think i think you're completely right and that uh, ability and i think authenticity comes into when you're witty you are authentic uh, with yourself but not trying too hard um yeah yeah and i think also wit generally for me i mean i don't know what the proper definition of it is is generally playing with what you're hearing as well so i mean obviously within a speech that's different but if there's a dialogue going on between two people wit it demands that you're picking up on what the other person has said generally which means that you've listened and i think any communication with anybody whether it's in business or in life or in the pub or in bed it's about listening and people love to be listened to and if you don't listen you don't learn about them about life about work about anything and so i think that's when wit really impresses people because it says you've listened to what i said 
and you know you've you've raised me if you like in the poker game of our dialogue in the poker game of our you've, you've taken it and you've raised it and that's that's what wit is all about i think I, I think that's so true, and uh, it's something. It was quite that's... beautiful, wasn't it? That, that was a beautiful. It thing. was, and, and, and uh, <laughs> that'll be in the book. Um, uh, um, but no, it's uh, the word listening keeps coming up over and over again with really mm. smart, really witty people, and I, I think that's what it's all about. You have to be engaged and properly listening. And if you're talking to an audience, people always think that's bizarre because most people who aren't good at public speaking are actually listening to their internal dialogue and just trying to get the words right. When in fact, it's a symbiotic process, isn't it, with the audience? When the audience does something or reacts in a certain way, your, your story about the CEO with the black country accent was the ultimate bit of listening. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that I think I've very, on very few occasions been asked to make a serious speech about things. Generally, environmental companies have said, will you make a speech for us? And I've only done it maybe five, 10 times. And I find that really difficult because then, A, it's difficult with the environment, it certainly was uh, 15 or so years ago when I was making those sort of speeches. Nobody was interested, nobody was taking climate change seriously. So they'd say, try and put a bit of wit in there, try and put a bit of humour in there. And of course you end up undermining the message. And that's the important thing with wit is you've got to use it sparingly because otherwise you can undermine what you're saying. And obviously as a comedian, there's an expectation that are going to be funny, but then, that expectation that we put on ourselves means that by being funny, you get a laugh. So the laugh tells you you're doing well. Now, when you're making a speech that isn't about getting laughs, you know, I mean, some of the speeches I've seen about the coronavirus thing at these press conferences, I just think, boy, it's, it's difficult enough. But the fact that they're not getting a reaction, you know, obviously they're not gonna get a laugh. But you think, how do you make a speech like that? How do you know it's going well? How do you know that people aren't bored? And, and I admire people who can, can do that hugely, but I suppose the skill set, if you like, is not the same, but it's similar. It's making people listen, it's not rushing, it's choosing your words carefully. Here's an example for you. This is very obscure, but years ago, one of my favorite programs was a late night BBC Two program called The Late Review. This is 20 years ago. And there was a guy on there, I can barely do his accent now, called Tom Paulin. And Tom was a poet, and he was from somewhere on the border, I think, of North and South Ireland. And he would talk incredibly slowly, and he would find every word that he wanted to use. Now, he must have been, I suppose, my age then. Uh, I was 20 years younger. My, my girlfriend at the time was, was late 20s, mid-20s. And she said, God, that Tom Paul is so sexy. And I said, why is he sexy? You know, he was, he was handsome enough, but, you know, he wasn't wasn't Liam Neeson and um, she said it's just the way he chooses his words so carefully if he chooses his words that carefully how sensitive is he to everything else to a woman's needs to his friends needs to anything and you know so you shouldn't ever lie about who you are and do things for just for effect but I do think and it's something I struggle with talking quickly I, I'm talking slowly because I talk quickly but when you do slow down and make your point and that's the tragedy in a way of things like the Today program on Radio 4. It's always cram this in, cram that in. Everyone's got, everyone's got to talk so fast. And you said by talking that fast, you're not getting your point across. You're not giving the listener a chance to come with you. And there's one thing certainly where Shakespeare helps a lot as an actor and 
maybe even as a speech maker in business, is that with Shakespeare, you have to guide your audience. You have to almost treat them like they're hard of hearing, if you will, so that you have to really enunciate, you have to really carry them with you without seeming to patronize, without seeming to hold back. And that's, that's the thing, is that pace of delivery. I think any speech making is, is just taking your time, but obviously not taking too much time. And that's the greatest dilemma we all have as speech makers and as comics. Well, it's interesting. There's that classic uh, Michael Caine quote is, that powerful people speak slowly. Uh, That's probably a better way of saying what I've just been spending four minutes saying. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah. power powerful people speak slowly. Powerful people speak slowly. Yeah. Speak slowly, which may be why he's always done that himself. And you know what he goes? Because they expect to be listened to. And people mm. who don't expect to be listened to speak quickly so that they they don't get interrupted and yeah. there is a psychological model whereby you're going actually that's true so anybody who wants to appear more powerful can actually yeah. just slow everything down they can but it, as we said it is a, a tightrope because for instance in my experience of doing lots of impressions of football managers over 20, 30 years. One of my favourite people uh, 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 that I've done, and I know a lot of people won't even, uh, I was going to say remember, but I think probably no is the right <laughs> word, is a, 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 a man called Howard Wilkinson, who used to manage, uh, well, he managed Sheffield Wednesday as well as Leeds United, I think Notts County as well at one point. But Howard used to uh, take... Uh, 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 so long that you just got bored. You thought, Howard, please just find a word. It doesn't matter, just any word. Just, just find a word. <laughs> um, but in this program like Match of the Day, which is where I get my football, where everything is held to skeleton, you go, you're getting club talking so quickly, you know, and you've got you know, Gary Lineker and the boys, and you know, Shearer talking pretty quickly. Let's get on to the next thing. Let's analyze that. It is a strange um, dichotomy, isn't it, really? Because actually, in psychology, we say that if you are meeting other people, you should actually get into their rhythm because mm. that way you will get more rapport if you get into their rhythm. Um, yeah, yeah. So he's standing out. But is he standing out for the right reasons? We, well, yes. And also, I think if you're you know, doing a speech at the um, conference centre in Birmingham at 3.30 in the afternoon on day three of a three-day conference, it's 3.30 <laughs> and you're talking that slowly, people are going to be asleep. But I suppose the thing is variety. That's the thing, speech-making. And within a comedy act, I think, is, is important. Variety of pace. And if when you get to the, you know, the really serious bit, then you can slow down. And then you can make your point. And then you've got people. And also by changing the pace, uh, you're drawing people in. Because you think, hang on a minute, he was talking really quickly a minute ago. And now, now, why is he taking so long? Oh, something interesting is coming. So one going from one to the other is, is really useful. And I find that as a com comedian too, sometimes just to, to slow right down. Slow right down and just to so, take a breath. It looks, so makes you look confident and it draws people in. Yeah, no, so that's something that everyone in business can learn from actors. I know you trained at the Guild Hall and comedians is pacing. I'm, I'm always talking about if you keep on talking at the same rate at like that, you'll eventually either put people into a deep trance or they'll just fall asleep. Well, Alan Davis, I remember working with him, again, this is 30 years ago when Alan was starting out on the circuit as well. well we all worked early together, 90s. didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. 
and you, you probably remember Al used to, he'd come on at the store late at night, you know, midnight sometimes, rowdy crowd, pretty rowdy. And he'd stand there and he'd sort of walk around a little bit and he'd sort of talk to them a little bit with his floppy hair and his T-shirt. And then he'd, he wouldn't get a laugh and he'd say, don't worry, it's meant to be shit, I'm just warming up. You know, I'm like, I'm like an athlete, I'm just limbering up, limbering up. So a few words here, a few words there, I'll get on with it in a minute. And the minute he did that, you thought, oh, okay, he's confident with this burbling. And I like the analogy of warming up like an athlete. Yeah, why should you come on and do your first gag within three words? Which I also admire. Um, but it was just, it was an interesting technique. You, you were drawn in by this slowness. And then he would, you know, do his stuff quite quickly. And then again, he'd, he'd take a lot, take a bit, a bit of time and slow down and out with the next bit. Yeah, the next bit. The other thing I think, which as a as a as an actor, as a linguist, if you like, uh, whatever I am, that I I've always uh, liked as as in speech makers, and you don't see much now. I think a lot of younger people are encouraged from the work I do in advertising. I know this not to repeat a word within a sentence. It's like the greatest sin. Never mind punctuation or interesting. You know, that's all gone out the window. But the one thing they seem to be taught at school is never repeat the same word twice within about a minute. And you think, no, repetition of a word, of an idea, uh, of a rhythm, which I've just done there, uh, is, is sometimes the most effective way. And you'll see people now, politicians even, who will say things like, the point of this, uh, the point of this policy, and they won't repeat it, they'll say, the idea of this suggestion, um, the crux of this uh, new uh, uh, um, body of ideas, you think, just repeat the thing. It's, well, it's the really useful thing is to repeat a word, to repeat a phrase. People don't always take it in. Well, I mean, if, if, if you took the Martin Luther King speech and went, I have a dream, I had a bit well, of a... Yeah. a, a no, that's a better a, example. Waking, you know, yeah. you know, I was half asleep the other day. This uh, came to me while I was, half, yeah, while I was in bed. Yeah. Yeah. It, it no, is. Repetition is very, very useful. Although, of course, as a comic, don't repeat the joke. <laughs> don't repeat the joke. I do want to hear the same joke. Although, again, you know, look at Harry Hill, you know, great example of that, of somebody who will go back to, in his stand-up, a joke again and again and again. Not tell the same joke, but almost the same. Milton Jones, brilliant at it, you know. My other grandfather, my other grandfather, my other grandfather, and you just love it. I mean, he doesn't do it one after the other. It's five minutes and 10 minutes, 15 minutes in between each one. But that going back as a comedian, uh, and doing a, um, a callback, as we call it. Yeah. People love a callback. And it also, I've always thought there is, among any audience, they love to pat themselves on the back and go, I know what he's talking about, or I remember that from earlier on. So people love a callback because it shows that you trust them to have listened again, and that they have been listening because they go, oh, yeah, I, I, I remember that. He did that earlier on. Remember that bit? Yeah, that's, that's from earlier on. So, but yeah, calling back is a very useful, useful technique. That, that, that's interesting from a comedy perspective about the, the, the best comedy requires people to just make that leap where they, and I like the, your idea that they're patting them on the back going, I'm oh, yeah. smart. You know, people I, love patting themselves on the back. I think that's, that's true and it's probably a bit uh, controversial and, and, and negative, but I find that that's the case with a lot of political humour, which I don't, I've never responded to. People always think as, as an impressionist, I must be doing political satire, I must be interested in it. I am not, and I don't. Uh, but I do think a lot of the audiences who go to that pat themselves on the back because they think, oh, I remember when President Trump said that, or I remember when, when Barack Obama said that, and I remember when Ted Heath said that, oh, aren't I clever? And you think, yeah, but it's not funny. You know, you're just sort of patting yourself on the back for remembering something. But anyway, that's, that's a beef yeah. that we should probably edit yeah. out. Yeah. Um, 
Enough well, of the topical humour with Ted Heath, you know. Well, that's what I mean. They, they think, yeah, I, I'm, how clever am I? But, um, yeah. uh, I was going to do an impression. Oh, yeah. One of the callbacks I started doing, I was going to say recently, it was back in whenever we could still do live gigs, so at least six months ago. Um, but I was doing this callback more or less for the first time, and I loved it. I had this idea, which I want, wanted to put in for a long time, about what people sound like they're going to say next and how useful that is for an impression. So what you're going to say next, but don't say, if you like, um, reveals a lot about your character. And for me, impressions and, are about the human voice and the voice is about your character. It reveals something through your voice. Um, so for instance, the first one was that Cheryl Cole, or whatever she's going by nowadays, I think she's just Cheryl now. Sure. Uh, but Cheryl always sounds like the next thing she would say uh, after any given sentence would be, and that's why I had to kill him. <laughs> She just has this sort of very, very dark attitude to life and to people. And so that, that was lovely when I say, and that's why I had to kill him. And then I do two or three more jokes because I tried it once, one after the other, and it didn't work. And then I say, uh, Richard Maidley always sounds like the next thing he'd say in any given sentence would be, I'm not rubbish and this program isn't shit. <laughs> and again, it's his attitude. There's a sort of defensiveness there. No, 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 I, this is worth listening to. I'm, I'm not rubbish, this program isn't shit. Um, so you don't hear him say that, but it sounds like what's defining him. But by separating them with a joke in between each one and then going back to it, uh, I, I won't give you the third one because it'll to, 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 you know, yeah. decrease the laugh if ever I do it again in front of anyone <laughs> who might be watching or listening. Um, but actually, the third one was Steve Bruce, who uh, was Newcastle manager, still is at the moment. And he always sounds like the next thing he's going to say is, well, I can't believe they've given us the job, to be honest with you. <laughs> but by separating those out, the callback with a slight variation each time really, really helps. And again, that's not telling jokes. That's not me saying, oh, here's a funny thing for you. You know, here's a funny joke for you. It's an observation. It's a bit of wit. Um, it's hard to recreate that. I mean, if every business person could do all that sort of stuff, they'd be doing stand-up comedy. But they are useful techniques. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. 
What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Well, that takes me to uh, the fact, is everyone funny? Or is, is it uh, a gift from God? Is it something you can work at? Uh, when I started doing comedy, uh, aged about 24, and went back to my hometown at Christmas, which I still used to do that every year after leaving university and everything else, you'd all go back to, to Evesham and meet up in the pubs at Christmas. And at that time, when I just finished drama school and I started doing the comedy circuit, I'd tell people what I was doing, and they would all go, you, you you're doing that. Because I had no, gave no hint of this when I was young. As I said, my father did it. I was not somebody who went around making people laugh at all. I, I was serious. I did sport. Uh, I did a bit of drama. But again, when I liked the comedy side of that, but I wasn't a witty person. I was very shy. I still am. So I think that can stop people from being, being funny, if you like, is that they've been in a situation like in those dressing rooms at the comedy store where everybody's being funny. And I would say one thing eventually, and people go, well, this. and you, you think, I can't do it. And I now have a real thing in my head that I, if I'm in a group situation, I shut up completely because I'm never the one whose voice cuts through. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know if everybody can be funny. There's a lot of things in their way. But, again, listening is the most important thing. Are you listening to what's being said? Can you pick up on that? So you can improve your funniness, definitely. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I always talk to people about the, the listening thing being because people get very, very worried about their in, own internal dialogue when in fact yeah. all you have to do is listen to the other person. And I think yeah. pretty much everybody, if they go out with their mate for a cup of coffee, they, they're not going with a list of questions like, did you see the match on Saturday? Yeah. You know, it, I it, do have one friend who does that. He writes them on his hand. <laughs> says, right, these are the things we've got to talk about. Okay. But that's quite endearing because it means that he wants to know these things and they're not sort of like just prompts in case the conversation dries up. They're, he's thought about it in advance. These are the things I want to know. I've thought about you beforehand and I want to know these things. I find that quite endearing. But he still listens to it and picks up on it. In fact... Um, this is a big name drop and show off thing. But years ago when I was doing all my telly stuff, I was very lucky to be, you know, on all these chat shows when you go and promote everything and was interviewed by, by Jonathan Watts, who, you know, is fantastic. And uh, by Graham Norton, who was also very, very good. Uh, but by Parkinson three times. And Parkinson really was, you know, something else. And um, he's often regarded as the king of all the chat shows. And sadly, you don't see him now. He's, he's got to that age now where he can't do it anymore. But... He said to me in 1999, when he was still at it, and I was about to do my first show with him, he said, um, he said I, I, I'll ask you the, the first question. This is off air. He said, uh, he said, I'll ask you the first question. I'll tell you what that is in a minute. He said, and after that, I've got a list of questions. He said, well, it's just a chat. It's just a chat. So I know vaguely where they are. They'll be on my knee. You might see me look down. In fact, they've seen you doing that. I'm sketchy. You make it. But I, I, I only glanced down. There's not an order to it. We just go where it goes. It's just a conversation. But the first question I'll ask will be this, just so you know. 
and he'd tell you his first question, but the rest were exactly that. And if ever I've interviewed anybody myself, that's the approach I take. And he's so right. You think you've got 20 questions or 10 questions. You roughly know what they are, but you don't want to just go question one, question two, question three, because then you're not listening again and the audience aren't listening again. You know. Is it important to be able to laugh at yourself? Yeah, exactly. I and mean, that's why I said that rather trite thing about EastEnders. But I think people in that sort of situation do not laugh at themselves. They don't just step away and go, I was a bit stupid there, wasn't I? Like, oh, if only I could have seen myself. Oh, I must have looked right. Yeah. Why did I lose my temper like that? You know? And if you don't do that, you know, who are you? And what do you, what, it's, We all have to laugh at ourselves. Um, yeah, I think it's one of the most important things to laugh at your own failings. And not in a sense of, oh, I'm a terrible person or, or anything like that, but just just to admit that sometimes you probably looked a bit a bit stupid when you did something or you know footballers must do it all the time they have to how do you get over missing an open goal you know you don't, you've got to laugh at yourself Federer missing those two match points against Djokovic last year you know to win his whatever it was eighth ninth Wimbledon I mean oh I hope you how do you get over that you have to laugh that's where humor comes in you have to just say oh and I think when people are ill or faced as, as a, I hope you're not, well, I know you've been through it yourself. We've all been through it, losing parents or seeing parents getting older now and suffering with illnesses and awful things. Sometimes you, you can only laugh about what they've said. If they've got dementia, you can only laugh if they've got some sort of, you know, mania or whatever thing that's changing their mind, making their mind into mush because otherwise you know, you end up in a heap of tears. So, yeah, laughter in those situations is extraordinary. And I think that's when I've been at my funniest lately is trying to cope with some of the things that life throws at you, which again goes back to why I suppose some comics and actors go on stage in the first place. It is a response to something. It is, there is a, this is a coping mechanism. With, with it's life. a release as well, isn't it? It's, uh, it's yeah. actually, you know, and I always think that, that humour humanises and for, for yeah. people listening to this podcast, you have to know that it's not a weakness. It's a strength and it, it, and it is seen oh, yeah. as a strength. So do people laugh enough in their own workplaces? Now, you and I uh, get to step into people's workplaces and, you know, maybe go to um, certain workplaces. So we're we're not in there day in, day out. But people, you know, you know, do do you think there's enough? Is it encouraged enough? Is it? I think I think certainly uh, in a lot of the contacts I have now is with people just in, in you know in shops, and you know there are some people who have a glint in their eye who will engage in some some wit in exchange, and others who who just don't. And uh, life is always better when people are able to to have a bit of fun or, or whatever else. Um, but I think there's so many different sorts of humour, different ways of making yourself and other people laugh and. And I've never been, and I sort of wish I was, really, but um, my sister's favourite phrase is, oh, we had such a laugh because, you know, and I've never been in that situation where, I, I mean, I'll laugh at something because I think it's clever, or I'll laugh at something because it's witty, or I'll laugh at something maybe just because it's a cat falling over or a cat doing something stupid, yes. But <laughs> um, I'm not great at having a laugh, and I think a lot of people are very good at that workplace banter, which is often the same sort of jokes, actually, over and over again. And you have to join in with them and you, you should know it like like roach like how are you i'm fine how are you it's there, there's certain jokes that people come out with and i've never been able to do those jokes and um again maybe it's because my father was from abroad we never i never learned that behavior of when someone says x you say y and then you both laugh together and it's not that funny but you laugh 
Um, so like Tony Hawk's everything. Well, that's what, that's what happens. You know, people just you say like you say that, and then you laugh, and that's social interaction, and on you go. Um, so no, I, I, I but I, I hope people do laugh at their work. But I think that's another difference with comedy. If we're on the comedy thing again, is silliness, and that's something I've never responded to, and uh, I find that hard to watch. Is is people being silly? And I've, during lockdown, I've, I've actually my mission, if you like, has been to watch as many classic movies as possible. And I found all these wonderful stations at uh, channels that show old films and watch lots of them. And it's been extraordinary going back to something after 30 years that you thought was really funny. That you go back and you go, well, that's not funny. That's just silly. Um, but there is a great place for silliness. But I think maybe do we grow out of silliness? I don't know. But a lot of people confuse being silly with being funny, with being witty. And you just choose whatever one makes you happiest, I think, in the end. Well, but some people manage to get the balance. I mean, uh, uh, we both grew up with Monty Python and Monty Python managed to actually cross from silly to um, witty, to smart, to... Uh, yeah, that's right. And someone like Lee Evans, who I, I adore working with Lee Evans because you just you got to watch Lee Evans and uh, Lee could do all three of those things really well. And I used to get so annoyed with a lot of people who'd say, oh, he just pulls funny faces and falls around. No, Lee Evans did the lot and was brilliant at all those things. I think the choice of what you do in business in terms of, you know, are you going to be funny or witty? I think silly is probably something not to do if you're making a speech. And I'm sure we've all been there where you've seen somebody just try and pull something off, which is silly and it, it doesn't work. Telling a, a joke, yes, as I say, all right. Being witty, best. Using language interestingly, listening to people, slowing down, brilliant. But doing something silly doesn't generally play, in my experience of watching it, that doesn't no. play very well. Well, as you know, I've, I've coached a lot of CEOs to do big um, speeches. And one of the things that when you first turn up, they've got all these ideas. I could come on with a clown's head yes. and you, you go, nah, yeah. do you know what? If that falls yeah. flat, you're done for the whole speech. Yeah. And, you know, and what you, we've got to do is find something that naturally flows from you, not something yes. that comes from left field and, and, and is silly and, uh, no, they'll really love it. And uh, yeah. I always say a lot of my job is talking people out of things. You know, yeah. It's like you really don't want to do that. But I think that's when, because we've all done it. You've all done stuff. I mean, I used to do this routine, uh, this opening thing, which I actually saw, who was it? Frank Skinner, I think it was. Yeah, Frank did it recently as well. And I thought, oh, that's the thing I used to do. Uh, not that he'd seen me do it, because you know, I don't think Frank's seen me work for about <laughs> 25 years, to be perfectly honest with you. But I used to come on, this is about 2008, and it was quite a new thing then. I used to come on the stage, and I would, instead of going to the mic directly, I would walk all the way around the stage like this in a zigzag and I'd get to the mic and I'd say, sorry about that, I was in the post office earlier today. And I thought it was a great <laughs> gag, but people didn't laugh at it because they thought, it's you wouldn't be in a post office. Why would you be in a post office? And why are you in a queue? Surely people just deliver your mail for you. And it just didn't play somehow. But I thought it was a really good idea. But the thing was, it was quite silly and it took a long time to do it. And you ended up with I ended up with an egg on my face the four or five times I did it. Because you think, oh, that took about 25 seconds and nobody laughed at it. But the thing is, as we've learned very early on, and you can only play that card three times in your 20-minute set or whatever, if something doesn't work, just acknowledge it. Just say, well, that didn't go very well, did it? Or 
yeah, that felt really funny when I thought of it earlier on, because then people will laugh at the fact that you have effectively laughed at yourself. You've said, yeah, that I, I own up, that didn't work, you know, because that's a great thing to do, to do just to admit your failure. Uh, but as I say, in a comedy, comedy set of 20 minutes, you can only play that card three times and then it's like, you really should have thought about this before you did it. No, and and I think it's really worth pointing out to anybody listening who, who wants to get better at every as, any aspect of humour is that, that admission, it, you know, uh, it's the hands-up moment and that humanises you. And, yeah. and, uh, and by the way, you can learn this by watching comedians. Uh, comedians yeah. die all the time, but it's how yeah. they do it. It's, yeah, I, and, and somehow I think getting older, which is no help to anybody as advice for a young person, but it matters less somehow to you. And then if you do mess up, you're much likely to just go Ugh, and carry on rather than be so tense because you think, oh, if I, if I hadn't made that mistake, I'd have got another three gigs out of it and then I'd have been on telly and then I'd become a millionaire and it was because that joke went wrong. But when you're out the other side of, of it a bit, you, you can you're a bit more relaxed and the relaxation somehow makes you better which well, is ironic because you know <laughs> you well, want no. to be better when you're younger no no but really what's happening from a psychological point of view is that you know there's the old saying if you want anybody to go into any state you have to go into the state first and as soon as uh, you're on stage and you tense up Guess mm. what? The audience will do the oh, same yeah. thing. So yeah. actually, at that point, you've lost them. But if you stay relaxed and you go, I mean, you go, I have no idea what I'm going to say next. But you know what? As yeah. soon as I remember, I'll get back to you. And the audience just yeah. go, oh, OK, we'll go yeah. with that. Yeah, but it's still hard to remember. And I mean, I still make those mistakes. And, you know, doing my tour last year with Jasper Carrot. There were days where Jasper, who's, who's a brilliant mentor, really, he would say to me, too fast, too fast. Or he'd say, slow down. Or, you know, first half was a bit speedy. And not all the time, but just now and again. Because he could tell that I could still get unnerved by something if three jokes don't work in a row. You know, Sean Locke said that years ago. He said, you've got three goes at it. Like a football manager's only ever six games from the sack, they say. In comedy, you can be doing really well for 19 of your 20 minutes. And then suddenly you do three bad jokes and they go, this guy's rubbish. <laughs> You know, and you go, yeah, all the other ones wrote really well. Yeah, but you've just done three, one after the other. Get out, go. So um, you're always a bit tense and a bit nervous, but somehow you have to get rid of that. And it's not easy, no matter how experienced you are, no matter how experienced you are. Repetition. Uh, but it, yes, no, uh, no matter how experienced you are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, but it, I, I just think you, you actually can't say it enough. No, you really can't say it enough. <laughs> um, but it it is about the the forcing yourself into being more relaxed. And then all the comedians that we worked with over the years at the Comedy Store, you know, your London Palladium, everything, they were all nervous backstage, especially when they were going on at two o'clock in the morning at the Comedy Store. All of us, I've mm. seen every comic go, walking back in the dressing room going, keep it tight, keep it tight, because they know that how what a tightrope that is. But as soon as if... well, that's the other thing I suppose, which uh, I would say to anybody writing anything funny, whether it's you know for a speech or wherever, is keep it tight and just look at it again and again and try not to repeat something you've said. Uh, in a, I mean, yes, yes, for repetitive effect, but don't start 
if you, if you can say something concisely, say it concisely, you know, and to be your own editor. And, and that, that's really important. And again, Skinner, who's, who's written and spoken, but he's, he's, got, he's got a book called um, on, on the Road, which is it's about his tour. And I think it was about 2007 when he went back to it for the first time in ages. And he wrote really concisely about constructing jokes and constructing comedy. But he talks in that about one word extra in a sentence and the whole joke can go down or one word too few. And he would go back and obviously you haven't got this luxury if you're making a one-off speech, but he would go back and, and work out what would happen and what he'd missed out and try it again the next day and not give up on an idea just because it didn't work once. I had a routine I used to do about um, Colin Jackson or as Colin Jackson, the, the athlete, uh, commentator now. And uh, it was a routine I did about how athletics, when you go and see it live, you realize is actually nothing more than a glorified school sports day. And I said, it's true. You think about it. I'm sure before too long, you'll hear Colin Jackson in the commentary box saying, um, do you know what he's done there in the one meters is absolutely brilliant. But now the big question is, can he go on and win the sack race and the egg and spoon? <laughs> and I'd say that and people would go, oh, that's quite funny. And I thought, I know this is a funny idea. I know it's a funny idea. And I don't know why, but I hadn't done the old rule of three. The old rule of three that we live by. But I thought that the routine was quite long. There was lots of it before that. Uh, so then one night I just said, if he could go on to win the sack race, the egg and spoon, and the pear and strings. Woof! <laughs> and you think, that was just two syllables, or three syllables, but one, one beat short, yeah. parents. And suddenly, that isn't the funniest thing. It's not funnier than the other two, but it's the third. Sack race, the egg and spoon, and the pear and strings. Well, little it's... things like that, you know, little tricks that you learn, little nudges. And uh, yeah, again, I'd forgotten is it easier to do it in somebody else's voice? Do you do you get away with more by using somebody else's voice? Is it like a vent act, a ventriloquist act, whereby the 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 puppet can get away with more? Uh, I don't know. I, I I can see that both ways, really. I remember years ago, Jeff Green, who was a wonderful comic. And still working in Australia, I believe. Um, but Jeff said to me, it's easy for you, mate. You've just got to do a funny voice and people laugh. And I thought about that and I thought, no, actually, you've got to have the routine. You've got to have the material. And when I was in the television show with Ronnie and Kona, I said to her this quote. And she said, it's so not true when you're doing the routines that we were doing the sketches physically on television. Because effectively, take, take Lucas and Williams, for instance, who are around at the same time as us, more or less, doing... Um, the thing they used to do, rock, rock profile. Um, they, actually, no, not doing rock profiles, doing, doing sketches. They had to score a goal, as I'd said, where we had to score a hat trick. Because with their sketches, once they had gone off after rock, rock profiles, with their sketches, no one's going to say, that doesn't look like that person, that doesn't sound like that person. They just say, is it funny? But as an impressionist, certainly on television, in sketches, you had to say, does it look like them? Tick. Does it sound like them? Tick. Is it funny? Phew. Hat trick. Every time some other comedian had to score a goal, you think so. Actually, it makes it harder because you're being judged on three things. Doing live stand-up, you're still being judged on two things. Is the voice good? Nowadays, it's also do we know who the hell that person is? Because we watch Netflix all the time. We don't know who Channel Four, what Channel Four is. Um, but yeah, you've got, still got to have the material. You can't just do a funny voice. But to answer the other part of your question, doing a voice does make a joke funnier. It's interesting to talk about actually how even comics who've been doing it for 30 years like yourself need to get back to full fitness in, in a sense as well. Uh, how, 
I mean, how do people who want to use more humour do it? Don't do they have to just regularly practice? Is it like going to the comedy gym? Ooh, uh, well, yeah, I think you always have to, if you're doing anything in public, you know, nerves come in the way. I've started playing the piano, as you mentioned in your introduction, in, in public, doing this show now where I, uh, well, hopefully I'll be doing it again probably next year, uh, where I combine playing 15 live pieces of romantic piano music. They're not funny. I'm not Bill Bailey. Uh, but I do jokes in between about the pieces or about the composers and then play the piano. Uh, that's probably the hardest thing I've ever done because you have two lots of nerves. You have the nerves of, is it funny? And then the nerves of, can I now put that completely out of my head and play the piano? And that has been the hardest thing I've ever done, the two things together, because the nerves and the concentration for the piano are so different and you have to just completely block anything else out. But the rehearsal for that is immense. And yet, as much as you rehearse, certainly playing a piece on the piano for me as a beginner and for any pianist, really any pianist, I've got a friend, several friends who are professional pianists and they say the same thing. They all play it, first of all, once they've learned it, to one friend, then maybe to three friends, then maybe they'll do a small concert with 10, 20 people. And then if they're performing in front of the Royal Albert Hall, at the Albert Hall or Wigmore Hall or wherever, then they may be ready, but they'd have done lots of other concerts on the way to doing the Wigmore or the Royal Albert Hall. You have to take it in stages, but you have to be prepared for that extra level of nerves that puts you off completely. Even making a wedding speech, you go through it in your bedroom and you think, yeah, I know it. Yeah, I, I, I can look up. I know that or I know the whole thing or I know how to do it. Your nerves are going to get in the way so much when you see people. And it's a bit like the old thing, you know, Glenn Hoddle, I think was the first thing the manager to say, you just can't practice penalties. You know, you can't recreate the tension. You can't recreate that experience of standing there in front of 80,000 people plus, you know, another 2 billion worldwide. You can't replicate that in training. And it's the same, but you can be as prepared as you can be. Well, that's that's mentally preparing yourself, isn't it? Uh, and uh, as we call it in psychology, anchoring yourself into states whereby you know that you have got that to such a degree. And by the way, everybody should rush and see you because it's an extraordinary show when you're doing the piano and the comedy in between. It really is. I mean, it, it's like two great feats uh, at once because uh, I marvel. You, you well, know, I you. just... I, as you it know, is my, just... it has been my Everest. It has been my Everest. Well, well, well you've conquered it, my friend. Um, in business, is it survival of the fittest or survival of the funniest? I would imagine the fittest, really. I would imagine the fittest. I would imagine the funny thing is is a bonus. I'd imagine it helps a lot, a lot. To be liked, to be warm, people like people who make them laugh, to make people listen to you, to show that you've listened to other people. All those things, as we said, go to creating comedy to making somebody funny. Um, but I would imagine it's an ingredient. Just being funny on your own is not going to make you a very successful businessman unless your business is comedy. But it might take you to the next level. Definitely. It can make a difference hugely. I think it can make a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. Being funny and just sharing, you know, just, just, yeah. Listening to people. And what's the difference in a way between being nice to people and being funny, you know, being nice means you're, you're, 
you're being warm, you're being considerate, you're probably being quite witty with them, you're being, you know, that, that, that is what I think would, for me, would be the most important thing. And humor comes into that, being funny comes into that, yeah. But I think just generally respecting people and being nice to them and wanting the best for them and helping them and, yeah, those are the things that I, I would look for most in, in, in business, I thought, I hope. Well, no, I think that's a big part of the whole humorology concept. We're going to uh, end the show with the bit we like to call quick-fire questions. And I always say that like, like I've written a little sort of sting for that, but I haven't yet. Uh, <laughs> um, who's the funniest business person you've met? Uh, I would probably say yes. I think it's, it was his name, Steve Lee, formerly of the Chartered Institute of Waste Management. Would you rather be considered clever or funny? Uh, <laughs> well, the I'd fart rather... noise was enough, yeah. to be honest with you. We'll just edit it round that. <laughs> I'd rather be considered, of all things, always kind and nice, but I suppose of those two... Uh, Probably clever, weirdly, but that's just me being egotistical. Isn't that ridiculous? And as I say, I'm not a born comic. I don't feel I'm a born comic. I don't know what I am born, but witty is what I'd rather be. But if I had to, yeah, witty. I would never say funny. Okay. Not odd. Humorous. I'd rather be humorous. Okay. What book makes you laugh? Uh, I don't tend to laugh at literature. I, 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 if anything, poetry and the poetry of uh, John Hegley and Henry Normal and sometimes Roger McGough, but particularly Henry Normal. If you don't know English poetry, I'd recommend you go and buy it. Uh, if you like, I can probably supply it, but uh, that's about as far as this rhyme goes. It'll keep me on my toes to sound like Henry Normal. Uh, it's not abnormal. <laughs> what film makes you laugh? Uh, I'd like to see it again. A film that I used to uh, love watching was Take the Money and Run, a Woody Allen film in which he plays a bank robber. And uh, one of the classic scenes, he turns up with a, a, a note to rob the bank and he puts it under the bank teller's desk and, it, and he can't read it. He goes, this is a, I've got a gub. Like, What's a gub? He says, no, it's, it's gun, it's gun. He definitely says gub. I think that's the funniest thing I've ever seen. Uh, what word makes you laugh? Ooh, I don't think I have a word that makes me laugh. Uh, no, I can't. I can't. I can't think of a word that makes me laugh straight away. That's all right. That's not very quick fire, is it? <laughs> okay. Serious side of it. What's not funny? What's not funny? Uh, I, th I think, think something I don't find funny at all is inventive swearing. There's been a big trend for this ever since the thick of it, really, of people swearing in the funniest, most convoluted way. And uh, I've always had a problem with swearing. I don't like swearing. If I swear, it's because I've dropped something on my foot or I've missed an open goal or I've missed an easy shot at snooker or I've hit my head on the swimming pool. But I don't like swearing. And inventive swearing, I find even less funny. There's a lot of it about, yeah. for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and finally, uh, desert island gags. If you could only take one gag with you to a desert island, what would it be? I've only ever tried to buy one gag. When I was doing my telly show, I was desperate to use this gag and I asked Tim Vine if I could have his gag and buy his gag. A lot of old time comics are always buying gags off each other and Tim wouldn't sell it. 
And the gag was, I can't remember, it was 21 years ago. I only remember the punchline, but it was something like this. At the time, Goran Ivanisevic had just beaten Tim Henman. He was world number three or four, or Henman was. Ivanisevic was, you know, top 10. Wimbledon champion, 2001. And um, Tim Vine was doing this brilliant joke. And he said, uh, he said, there's, I can't do Tim Vine's voice. He said, there's a lot of, uh, lot of warlocks and wizards in the world of uh, tennis, you know. Uh, Tim Henman, he's a warlock. Boris Becker, he's a wizard. And that Goran, Ivanisevic. <laughs> I love that. That yeah. is my perfect joke. And Tim Vine thought of it. Alistair McGowan, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. The Humorology podcast was hosted by Paul Barros and produced by Simon Banks. Music by Steve Hayworth, creative direction by Les Hughes and additional research by Helen Sykes. Please remember to subscribe, like and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Big Sky production. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.